Hey, this is Cody Turner, and you're listening to Tent Talks. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend Darian Spearman. Darian is a fellow doctorate student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut, and he's now a third-time guest on the podcast, which I believe is the record. Here we talk about a range of different things, mostly focused on politics, I'd say, and just a lot of the chaos that's unfolding in 2020 in general. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. It seems to me that you know conservatives and liberals have different definitions of freedom and what it takes to maximize human freedom and yes. like they'll both say they want to maximize human freedom but conservatives yes. tend to have this individualist conception of human freedom where freedom means the government's completely out of your business and you're able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do whatever you want it's like completely individualistic and you know the government's not robbing us of our taxes cuz taxation is theft yes whereas it seems like people on the left have a more uh, collectivist conception of human freedom, right? Yes. Where it's like, okay, well, in order to ma- kind of going along with what you just said, in order to maximize human freedom, there are certain things that need to be in place, right? You need to have a certain amount of healthcare. You need to have a shelter. You need to have an education. And there are certain people, because life is just a game of luck, that don't have these things for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And what we should do in order to maximize human freedom is as a community come together and maybe have higher taxes and pull our resources together so we ensure that everyone has these basic necessities because mm-hmm. then with with these basic necessities, they can maximize the human freedom and have the luxury to think about these things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to do all other kinds of things they want to do. And so what you, your argument... Let's get a little closer. Oh, the argument that you just made reminds me a lot of like Rawlsian forms of liberalism, right? Yeah. Um, where in the state, in the... Veil of behind the veil of ignorance, which is very similar to the Lockean, Rousseauian, um, Hobbesian state of nature, right? This kind of con- abstract conceptual space prior to when civilization began, where we can inf- where we can kind of figure out what the core principles that organize that we should organize our society around come from. Rawls is saying, yeah, you need to. Um, um, if you don't know your position, if you don't know what your fortune is going to be, if you don't know what your um, whatever forms of um, hi- social hierarchy where you'll be placed in that, you're going to want a society in which there's taxation and, and distribution of wealth to a certain degree. Right. Um, Maximize the minimum outcome. Yeah. And so, though a lot of people have problems with Rawls, me being one of them to an extent, but we can get to that if we want to. But really, to this addition between conservatives and liberals, um, it comes down to a few things. I think one, at an emotional level, I think it comes down to empathy and sympathy, right? In a sense of, do you feel us, do you feel, how do you feel when you're watching someone else suffer? Yeah. Um, and, or do you have the sense that, that person deserves everything that happens to them and there's no need to really reach out to them. So I think it has to do a part with how much emotional energy you have in yourself that you can share with others or that you can perceive others. But I think on, the, on a, at a philosophical level, I think it really comes down to human potential. And what do you see as the 
how, how do you see the world improving by more people being able to actualize themselves, right? So the, when you talked before about this very individualistic, conservative notion of the self, well, that self is ultimately self-contained in a certain sense, right? And it's obviously that's an illusion, but it's, it's self-contained. And within that self-containment, there's this notion of very free association that I get to choose yeah. who I want to associate with or not in this kind of, but I'm kind of this like centered individual and then I choose freely my associations. And that's kind of what free freedom is like in a communal sense for, for the conservative side. But if the government comes and tries to force me into certain kinds of bonds or relations with other, that's an inherent violation of my internal integrity or um, or those people are unworthy, <laughs> which is another violation, right? That I have this sense of being able to choose who I can, who deserves what I have and don't have and things like that. But there's a sense that's underneath that it's like, I can take care of myself and I'm fine and my life is fine. And therefore, there's no need to improve the lots of others. Like if they need, if they, can work or they can do things to improve themselves, that's fine. But if there's all this suffering going on, in some cases, literally in my same city, my same neighborhood, yeah, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me too much. And what a lot of people who are on the left, liberals, progressives, radicals, whoever, there's a shared, um, well, certain liberals, <laughs> there's a shared understanding that that's just not the case. As long as there's this a lot of destabilization of people around me. There's a there's a continual chance that I'll be destabilized at some point too. And two, if those people, because I have some kind of value for them, a connection to them, I understand that they get to actualize themselves. My life will be better in a way that it couldn't be if they weren't. And I'm working to make sure that that happens for myself or my children. Yeah, and when everything's when everything's going right with your life and you know you, you again you have the privilege to not think about the suffering of others and, and and sometimes it's hard because you don't have that lived experience and this is something that i've been thinking about a lot with respect to healthcare. Mm-hmm. i've been healthy for most of my life so mm-hmm. I've, I've never really had to think about you know the ins and outs of our healthcare system and whether it's just and whether it's unjust but there's one thing you know, maybe a distinction can be made between conceptual understanding and experiential understanding. You know, you can have a conceptual understanding mm-hmm. of someone suffering, but then when you actually get sick and you have the experiential understanding, I realize like, oh wait, like this like this is completely debilitating. This yes. isn't letting me live my life. This yes. isn't letting me be autonomous in the way that I used to be autonomous. Mm-hmm. And people, and that's not to say that I'm the epitome of suffering. Like a lot of people suffer worse than me. But you know, that's I got I got a little question. right. But you get a little taste of it. And you realize like, oh, some people are dealing with this day in and day out. Like now that I have this lived experience, it's easier to sympathize and empathize. And then I start looking exactly. at the healthcare system. Exactly. And I'm, you know, I'm realizing and thinking more deeply about the fact that there are people that are pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and due to no fault of their own, they get cancer and they mm-hmm. go broke mm-hmm. and they're begging for money on GoFundMe just to get treatment. And mm-hmm. there are however many thousands of people that die each year because they don't have adequate health care in this mm-hmm. in the society and then the whole idea that the level of health care that you receive is tied to how much money you make if you're richer you get a higher yes. level of health care that is t- completely immoral 
that just strikes me as completely immoral, right? Like it is like, so I've, <laughs> over the past month, since I've not been feeling well, I've done more and more research into healthcare and I've suddenly become a much more staunch advocate for Medicare for all and just realizing just how inhumane and unjust our healthcare system is. And it is directly related to what you just said. Like I had the privilege of not thinking about when I was healthy. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I, and uh, by the way, I'm lucky I have healthcare, mm-hmm. right? But now I'm I'm starting to realize all these things and and it's just crazy. And like, you know, I, I don't, I haven't uh, done all of my adequate research. Like I get that there are roadblocks to Medicare for all. Maybe having uh, a public option along with the private system is like the way to get to Medicare for all. You know, conservatives have all these arguments. They'll say like, well, if you have government bureaucrats taking care of healthcare and you take it out of the uh, the free market, then the quality of healthcare will go down because, um, you know, if Can you I have ask? goods that are competing in the free market, that leads to a better quality of healthcare. But then I look to all these countries, first world countries that have some kind of universal healthcare system. And it seems like by all the metrics that I've studied that their level and quality of healthcare is comparable to ours. So like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so you've you've laid out a lot of different things that we can unpack that are that are great. Um, I'll start with the ones that you ended with, and I'll move backwards. But one of the things is that these other countries started building their systems decades ago, right? And my grandmother, who has a, a PhD in, you know, think in rehabilitation, but she moved into the medical field and eventually did a career in public health. In the 70s, she was working with trying to work with people to get us to have universal health care because that was the that was kind of the wave of when a lot of other countries were doing it. And the funny thing is now we have tons of research and evidence and failures and successes that we can look at and try to craft a system that is better or at least doesn't have as many of whatever we perceive to be flaws in those systems. We can try to figure those things out. But what conservatives try to do is they say, because this system can fail or has certain failures, we shouldn't do it at all, right? As if our current health system doesn't have massive failures, right? <laughs> right. Something, having, something having problems just means that you need to, you need to create groups of people who are capable of solving those problems or are hired to solving this problem. You create, talking about job creation, right? You make this healthcare system, you realize that it has a certain set of flaws. Then you hire and train and create groups of people who can work to address those flaws. I mean, that's what our, that's what our, that's what capitalism did for a lot of, a lot of fields that we see now, right? Is that there are certain things that when, let's take mining, mining for, for rare metals, right? There's issues that are surrounding surround how to mine for rare metals. And if you're trying to build up technology that uses rare metals in increasing fashion, on the one hand, you can say, wow, rare metals are very difficult to get. Wow, a lot of rare metals are in China. Uh, we need to figure out, we don't. Or you can hire, you can create people by training and thinking and going to school for political diplomacy and things like that, or science and engineering chemistry to figure out how to solve those problems. That's what they do. Like you create people that can help solve the problems that you're trying to solve. But what conservatives are saying is that that process, which is done in other areas, healthcare fundamentally is not one of those areas where we should be investing more. 
And I think it comes down to one, the question of empathy, right? Yeah. That a lot of these people don't care about these other these other people. They have their own, they have the healthcare is good for them, or they have a lot of money invested in the current system. And they don't want to do any of what they don't see the value. But in the, just quickly, the doing, thing that's yeah. crazy is like the conservatives, they always talk about how, you know, you should pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But when it comes to health problems, that's due to no fault of your own. Yeah. Like, it seems like they should be able to recognize but that. It's not like due to some bad. I mean, maybe in some cases, if you're a chain smoker and you get cancer, like, OK, but like in, in most of these cases, this is just something that happens to you. It's bad. This, luck. Is, this is where you get the problems with some of the deep moralism. Right. That that people have criticized being on the left when it was very popular with these arguments about freedom of speech. It was really funny. You, you know, notice like no one's worried about that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like a few years ago, everyone was so I talked to my students about that last semester. I was like, they didn't even. It's so funny when I brought it up, like right. like last semester, they weren't even they were like, really freedom of speech. Like it's not. I was like, wow, like they didn't remember. Or they wasn't they didn't paying attention to it, but I remember where people were so worried about that. But now no one's <laughs> no one cares at all. It's like nothing's really changed. We didn't like resolve. Right. We didn't come to a resolution. Well, quickly on that point, like I've noticed that on an individual level, like when things are going right with my life, I'll start to uh, suffer and focus on trivial problems. Mm -hmm. And then the moment something actually bad happens, like a health scare, all those trivial problems that I was worried about just seem silly. I'm yeah. like, why was I even worried about but this? You, the <laughs> but the funny is, even before the pandemic, it was just like people just suddenly stopped talking about it. Like, yeah, no, I remember before it was such. But I think after, I think it had to do with like Trump winning, and I think a lot of people like, a lot of like, a lot of things very became very clear about where certain things were going and who was allying with what and 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 what, and so people kind of dropped the subject. But um, there is still a lot of talk about cancel culture and the culture yeah, wars. That's a different thing. Yeah. And that, that is a bit different. Yeah. And we can talk about that because I've had a uh, I've had to deal with some not person, but other people I've related to had to deal with that very strongly. And it's really? not. Yeah. And it's not. And it doesn't have anything to do with. It's not really an issue of freedom of speech. It's much more of an issue of um, related to prison abolition of, of our culture of punishment. Yeah. Right? And that you there are a lot of people who are trying to evolve and create new systems of meaning and community and connectivity but it's very hard to create to simultaneously fight for a new future resist all these you know do all these things uh and then at the same time create and invest in forms of healing and um non non punitive forms of justice if that's all you've been handed is is punishment right um, and we can get to that topic. Yeah, let's shelve that. I do want to get in um, further into that. But um, let's get this a little closer. Oh, sorry. But it <laughs> it comes down to I think a lack of empathy, and I mean that a sense of not having the experience, but also just not caring. But also, it comes down to where is the value of human life actually located, right? If you notice this, as is very this has been commonly mentioned, right? For the same people who fight so hard to make sure that you're born the same people who like don't care at all about like cultivating your human life right and so for this for the for the conservatives in that sense the for them human life is a deeply like it's a weirdly it's a weird mix of like the, the theological but also deeply biological in a very particular way right that like you your matter should not be destroyed before you're born but your matter can be destroyed in any number of ways <laughs> after after it's born um that does seem to be 
kind of a hypocrisy. All the you know, so many conservatives are pro-life, but are staunch advocates of the death penalty, say, for example. And, and that links to what I said, this idea of this deep moralism, right? Which is different than politics, right? Because politics has more to do with power um, and how power should be organized or how power can be organized. And ethics has a lot more to do with how we should be treating each other and things like that, regardless of whether or not you have power or how you gain power, things like that. Um, and, but when it comes to, for conservatives especially, these very, very staunch notions of people being worthy or unworthy. Mm. And it overlaps from Christianity. Uh, you're a modern Christianity. It also overlaps from the racial caste system, right? Where certain people are just inherently inferior and overlaps from old, long time aristocratic notions, right? That, that notion of bloodline and poor people are poor because they're just an inferior stock. And one yeah. thing that's happened is that um, the, the, the circle of who can be, who can have this kind of aristocratic mindset of being worthy and other people being inherently inferior, inherently unworthy in some kind of way has just been expanded to include more people, right? And then those people are now will fight tooth and nail to maintain that sense of who they are. But if certain, if someone is inherently a problem, Du Bois talks about that with when when he when when he's talking about trying to conceptualize the problem of race in the 20th century in America, he said a lot of times people would talk to him about like, oh, so how does it feel to be you know, black in this country, or how does it feel to be this or this and this in the late 1800s? And he said, what they really want to say is, how does it feel to be a problem, right? Something that's that's causing all these issues that everyone's fighting over and arguing over and stuff like that. But for a lot of conservatives, there's a strong notion that like, that some people have, that you can you can do things that immediately make you unworthy of continual support. And a child an unborn child, which will be their ideal in a weird way, is kind of like their one of their ideal human subjects, is mm. completely innocent. That's why, that's why it's so wrong to harm them or kill them because they didn't do anything. They're just mm. they're just a, a fetus, right? And they're a human being and they haven't done anything. But once you're born, there's all these like like potholes or pitfalls that you can fall into that make you immorally unworthy and deserve and worthy of literally bringing the force of the state against you or bringing the force of the, our economic apparatus against you or whatever it's like oh you're 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 black but you're acting in a certain kind of way that's very whatever or you're uh, queer or you're you got an abortion or you had sex when you shouldn't have had sex or you or you so forth and so on and you can look at that and say, well, that person is not worthy of any support from me or from the government. And the government is just helping spread and cultivate degeneracy in a certain kind of way. But of course, these people are just as, if not more, degenerate than a lot of these other people. But you get to say that yours is somehow better or more contextualized. I do feel like maybe even at a deeper philosophical level, part of the difference between whatever classical conservative and liberal ideologies and almost comes down to the question of free will like how much how much agency do you have over your life and in constructing yourself how much autonomy do you have over 
rising above your circumstances or how much are you a product of your circumstances? And I'm more of the, I mean, I don't really believe in free will and I'm more of the opinion that you are a product of your circumstances. I don't want to say that moral responsibility therefore doesn't exist, but Mm -hmm. I do think that, um, you know, again, this idea that you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's almost just a kind of an insane cliche at this point, right? But uh, yeah, I, I do think that maybe some of it can be traced back to that deeper philosophical question. Like, I didn't, I didn't create myself. You know, I didn't create myself. Uh, I had the the genes that I have. I had the upbringing that I have. And I mean, even in this, you know, I don't want to get. We don't have to get bogged down into a whole thing about free will. But even in this moment right now, I don't. I can't think these thoughts before I think them. All of this is just happening right now. These mm-hmm. thoughts are just arising into consciousness i'm not the creator of these thoughts i'm the conscious receiver of these thoughts you know so it's just in at some deep existential level you're just kind of along for the ride of your life and i know how conservatives will react to that they were like well you can't have that attitude like you know because then you're just going to give in to your circumstances and i partly understand that i I do think that you should uh you know as a practical matter believe that you're empowered and um, that you're able to rise above any hardships. Of course, of course I agree with all that, but I'm just talking about on that deeper existential level, this question of free will. And that's kind of where my mind is at with respect to that. Yeah. And honestly, the reason why I started with the notion of, uh, empathy and worthiness is that I don't really think it comes down very much to, um, how you feel about how free people are because, There's a lot of people on the left who believe very strongly in free will. They just know that the question is, what kinds of barriers or systemic things can prevent you from actualizing yourself fully? And which you were talking about circumstances. Um, And 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 that we should we should invest in removing those. Right. Because that's the thing is. Well, those would be barriers to freedom. Right. That's what I'm saying. They do. I'm saying they do. I'm saying there's a lot of people in left who do believe in freedom, and just as much as conservatives. It's just that conservatives are the ones, in a weird way, who. Um, that's why. It, that's why I said it. Really, to me, it comes down to like oh, em- saying, empathy yeah. and awareness of others and reality. Like you get to live in a bubble where you believe, like when you're saying, like, you know, like I didn't realize until I got really sick, what it was, how much it impacted you to be sick. Yeah, and so. You for if if you were if you were if you could talk about it in the way we framed it, you realize the way that your own biology, biological interactions can impose a limit on your capacity to act. But, but, um, but two, but one, one, I mean, a couple of things. One, you don't have to have that experience necessarily to believe that um, we should have Medicare for all, right? You can believe that, like, because it's just like, yeah, like. If someone gets sick, they sh- you know, you can do that. Or two, one thing that happens is that a lot more of the people who've had these various experiences are starting to figure out, this is what a lot of these, um, some of these arguments within the left are about, is that these people who've had these different kinds of experiences, they're trying to figure out how do we relate to each other and correlate together, right? Because we are witnessing a certain kind of reality. These people don't even want to acknowledge it. And therefore, we have to position ourselves against them politically and economically and we have to figure out how to do that right but you're just seeing a growing coalition of people that's just building more and more over time 
who have had these experiences and can share in them and talk about them. Because maybe it wasn't me, but maybe my brother or my mom or someone had it and now you've had it and now we can talk about it. And that might be part of the reason at the experiential level why we do it. But for the people who are very comfortable, and sometimes you could argue even maybe even, I think there's studies about that, that sometimes even a little uh, sadism and like there's a kind of, um, everyone has this, but um, it seems like conservatives tend to get a bit more pleasure from watching people get what they deserve in a certain sense. Yeah, it's kind of that retributive conception of justice, eye for an eye, as opposed to kind of a deterrence or restorative base model. Exactly. So so that's why for me, it comes down to like, how much do you value human life in in a very robust sense? And there can be experiences that lead you to that. There can be conceptual ideas that lead you to that. But really, yes. it's very much going to come down to that because you can, um, if you if you believe that like free will is like we can determine our own fates and our own destiny, um, um, regardless of circumstance, which which I think people only really believe out of like deep um, self-deception or ignorance, but both. Usually it's more self-deception because a lot of these people get help. You know, like I remember uh, my professor, Ken Stickers at Southern Illinois University, he told me where there was um, this book where it said when you talk to some, some of these people and you ask them, if you just ask them to tell them the story of how they got to the position they're in, they'll mention, oh, this person, my brother's friend, like, gave me this job and then this and this and this and then this manager we got we connected really well and then he you know told me he gave me the manager position and then this and this and this but then if you ask them like but then if you just so they'll say that but if you ask them straight up who helped you like who's responsible for your success they'll say oh it was me even though they'll tell a story of all these different kinds of people and up and and and, and chances and things that went their way yeah when they're confronted in their Self per- at the level of self-perception of how they see themselves, mm. they switch to like a auto-genesis. I created all of this. And that means that I get to be much more, I don't have to share. I don't, I'm not responsible to anybody else. I don't have to ensure these things spread to other people. And I do think that uh, maybe there, so I definitely agree with all that. I think mm-hmm. maybe there are two different conceptions of freedom at play like there's Mm. this philosophical question of freedom which is could you have done otherwise that's how i understand Mm -hmm. it like we rewinded Mm -hmm. the clock and all the conditions were the same could Mm -hmm. i have done other than i actually did and then there's this kind of more practical conception of freedom where you know are the structures of society and the institutions arranged in such a way so as to maximize everyone's autonomy right and I think yeah. you, you can believe in a libertarian conception of philosophical freedom mm-hmm. while still acknowledging, as you just noted, that there are tons of structural barriers to people maximizing their lives. So, And I wouldn't ever want to suggest that, you know, as soon as you believe in a libertarian conception of freedom, then you're just on board with the whole conservative ideology. <laughs> oh, well, I guess you can blow yourself up by your bootstraps, right? <laughs> I guess the point that I was trying to make was just that that's one way maybe to arrive at that empathy and sympathy that we've been talking about if you recognize mm-hmm. that um we're maybe we're not philosophically free in that and, way and that was interesting to me when i read nazik and yeah. and like he literally says and that's when i was just like yeah this is all just a kind of hodgepodge game that um was put together in the 50s and 60s when the conservatives had to create 
a new form of thinking that wasn't just like so purely like um, racially, you know, racially ideological. Um, Nozick says that like we basically need a, a one time mass distribution, right? Because there was all this unfairness of way things were accumulated. We knew we need like a one time mass distribution that sets the foundation for a real libertarian society. Though it's not supposed to be a continual thing, as someone like Rawls would say, he says that we do need a one-time like redistribution of wealth. Then we can operate by these libertarian principles of of freedom, and that's a better society. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, this guy's literally seriously trying to think. That's something he's getting to it conceptually. Like he's literally trying to think through like how does the society work based on these principles? If we're not going to do the Rawlsian uh, uh, um, welfare capitalism liberal state. Even he said, and when I saw that, I was like, yeah. And so a lot of the, one thing that happens, a lot of different things where conservatives have grabbed a lot of different things and put them together and um, to create a kind of worldview that kind of makes it, but it makes sense when you have, when you're in a seat of like having power, not really caring about others and um, believing that you are super elite for some various reasons because you have, because you have a certain kind of power you've inherited or you can actualize um yeah i think that the way it's kind of circling back to the healthcare thing the way that these things are portrayed by the other side and weaponized like with the with the medicare for all whenever i start to talk about this with my conservative minded friends it's always mm. i mean you know the attack it's always oh you're advocating for socialism yeah, this is a gateway to communism yeah but what i don't understand that's like, just look, propaganda yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm not anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. I, you know, going back to what we were talking about before the beginning of the podcast, yes, in my ideal utopia, if, let's say, AI takes off and AI is able to automate away all of human drudgery, maybe we create those Star Trek replicator buttons where we can, you know, just press a button and it can create anything that we want. So there's just an overwhelming yeah. amount of abundance. Mm-hmm. Maybe in that kind of technological utopian future there would be no need for capitalism and Mm -hmm. i would be all on board for that but as of now no i'm not anti-capitalism i think there are benefits to capitalism but to say that you want medicare for all isn't to advocate for socialism like that's what i don't understand like we don't we agree as a community that there are certain functions in, in a society that we should all pull our resources together to provide for other people like a fire department right if your house is on fire the fire department comes, puts it out, and you don't have to pay for that because our tax dollars pay for that. Why can't all I'm saying is why can't we do the same thing for healthcare? Why can't we can keep the capitalist infrastructure for now, right? But just provide more welfare programs and safety nets for people. That's not I mean, that's not socialism. That's not communism. If there's going to be anything, any service that we provide for people where they don't have to pay, it seems like healthcare should be at the top of that list, right? Yeah, and for the record, I am anti-capitalist, and yeah, I think that I know. makes. <laughs> I know we talked about that, but that makes your point even stronger. In that, yeah, this really has. As someone who's on the other side of that debate, this issue of healthcare really has nothing to do with who should control the means of production in society. Right. It really has. That's how. But that's how deeply, like that's what I'm saying. That's how deeply the 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 idea that our economy is ge- should be geared towards bettering human lives and increasing human flourishing and prosperity that's how far away the conversation has gotten right yeah that literally <laughs> like there are so many things that 
And to be fair, people did have to fight for them, right? And this is where, when I teach ethics, I always go over, um, I always take a little bit of time to talk about labor history, right? And because we, Labor Day, I mean, in terms of living in a capitalist society, I would say this is a level of ideology. There's a reason why we don't have a real robust celebration of Labor Day, of all the struggles of workers to give us what we have. Like, that's what Labor Day is supposed to be about. Like, while a lot of people fought, lost their jobs, died to make it so we have a 40-hour work week. Right. Right. To make it so that we have uh, health care attached to it. To make it so that we have better working conditions to make, you know, there's been a lot of, of, um, there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of effort. Like the people, there's this, there's this, um, book, I forgot who wrote it, but it's called the age of acquiescence. And he's talking about how in the mid 1800s, when capitalism was really being entrenched in America, a lot of people resisted it. Right. Because the work, because the working culture we have now, where you go and you spend, especially back then, 10, 12 hours in a factory, that was very alien to a lot of people, right? And there are new laws being passed, like for example, like laws created around like loitering, right? Like that's one of the weirdest laws ever that like, you can't just stand somewhere, right? It's illegal, like if you're just standing around, it's like you can get arrested or fined, right? Part of that, part of that reason those laws were created was these kind of, um, these excesses of like human wasted potential that capitalism manif was manifesting, they had to find a way to control it. Because mainly, one of the main loitering stops is people who are poor or homeless, right? Those you still keep those people from being around asking for money or stealing or whatever you do when you're when you've been deprived of what you deserve or what you need, and you live in a you live in a city where you can walk places. But two, a lot of times people didn't want to work, <laughs> right? They would, they, you know, you working 10, 12 hours, that sucks, right? So people would like stop. They would like, they would work five hours, go and play games, or they would work 10 hours, or they wouldn't go in one day. And they had to, they had to make that a crime to just be sitting around not being productive, right? This is where it all links together, right? That loitering is a law that, that makes, not being unproductive that that's like one of the four founding things that makes being not productive into a crime mm -hmm. right that literally if you're just standing around all day day after day and that's, place, how, that's just how we've all been programmed that's how i've yeah. been programmed at least yeah and you could not be doing anything you could you could be singing you could be asking for money you could be just you could be having a drink every day whatever but if you're just sitting in certain places day in and day out on the sidewalk even right sidewalk not no one owns the sidewalk right so or the police will come and be like, hey, that is illegal, right? <laughs> because, because there has to be something that there has to be a structure involved at the legal level, then it turns into the psychological level that enforces an, an urge towards productivity. Um, because, yeah, most human beings, they want to do things that are meaningful, but they don't want to be productive for productivity's sake. They want to do something that matters to them. And, yeah. and, you, and you'd be surprised, uh, anybody, that... When you, when you really cared about something, it was pretty easy to do a lot of work for it, right? We're talking like relationships, we're talking art, we're talking business, we're talking watch, watching through. Some people, they watch like before Infinity War came out, they watch every single Marvel movie in order. It's a lot of work, <laughs> you know? Um, but someone will say that those people weren't being productive, 
even though they were doing it takes a lot to watch like I don't know how many movies were in this series by that point, but thirteen to sixteen, two and a half, three hour movies. I mean, yeah, and what do you get when you have all this you know, you have the man telling you that you need to be productive twenty four seven, but then you have all of these problems related to an employment. I mean, with the pandemic, with automation taking away jobs, yes. with the increasing wealth inequality in America. It seems yes. like for a lot of young people, their prospects for getting that meaningful employment are dimmer and dimmer. And yet we live in this system that tells them that's what they need to do. And it seems like these two things are fundamentally at odds. And that's just going to create, you know, some kind of unrest and felt meaninglessness and all the rest of that. as As the system gets emptied out of its capacity to make human life worth living, people are going to, and that's why I said it's going to be a matter of politics, because people are going to start to increasingly demand to change our economic and social system. Whether or not socialism is better or worse than capitalism, people literally aren't going to care about that question. They're going to care about what do we need to do to make it so that our lives are more meaningful and worth living and that we don't have to internalize. Like people like people are being asked to internalize so much of the system's like limitations into themselves, right? Because that's the other side of the of the individual is that if you're if you're responsible you have to hold all these things in yourself and this is why you're seeing increased depression increased suicide um, like what, a lot of people don't know that like one of the first it's one of the craziest things I, I do think that once we get over a lot of this system we figure out whatever system's better we like in a couple hundred years or whatever one of the things that people will look back on as like really crazy is how we accept suicide Right. That like yeah. people in large, large numbers are just killing themselves every day. And it's in, it's increasing based on my knowledge. Yeah, and it's right? increasing. No and surprise. The, and what people don't know that is like one of the first, it might be even the first sociological study was about suicide by Emil Durkheim. Because when they uprooted the people in Europe from their traditional land where people lived for thousands of years and the ways of life and community, moved them into the cities, made them work in factories and this whole urban environment. Because part of the cities are very much tied to the... The, a lot of the modern way cities are organized is tied to the buildup of factories and things like that. And one of the things that happened is that people started killing themselves. And this is why it's important is that they had to do a sociological study because they didn't know why. Right? <laughs> they didn't know why. Like that, that tells you that there was a time and like, like that's how different it was. Like people that they did, like these people deleted, they're like, why are people killing themselves? Like, it just uh, seems so obvious now. You're just putting them in this factory and making them work well, 12 well, hours. I don't, not, not, not that it's obvious now, but I'm saying the fact that it wasn't obvious to them means that it wasn't something that generally happened. Right. Right? That people generally did not. It was actually enough of a problem that they had to do a study about it because people generally don't kill themselves. But suddenly they were starting to do it. And Imel Durkheim came up with two answers even back then. But... For me, the capitalist class responds to this differently to try to mitigate that with consumption and other things like that. But he said one is that, this talk to the individual, your success and failure is on your own. There's so mm-hmm. much isolation, right? If you fail, all the weight of your failure is on yourself and you often don't have good support networks or systems of meaning or other opportunities to um, recover. So you can literally like lose everything. Like You can literally go from having a decent job to being homeless, right? And the right. pressure of that 
is something that a lot of us carry that that we really that we realistically and that's why I tell people it's like people think that with the empathy thing people think that like you can kind of get away from you can see a homeless person or you can see a mentally um, person with a mental illness or a black person or whoever um, in a state of suffering around you and feel like that has nothing to do with you. But in reality, when you get a lot of pressure on you, there's a lot of anxiety that pops. And what's that anxiety? The fact that you could be homeless, the fact that you could be you could have a breakdown and be on the street, the fact that you could lose everything. We right. all have to carry that burden. But even that is still like fundamentally selfish. Like you're not worried about the other person. You're worried because that could be me. That's another, that's a whole, but a lot of people don't even have that. They think it can't be them. Right. That's where a lot of this buildup comes from. But so that's one. Two is that life is less meaningful in the city. That's what he argues, right? That if, if you're in a small town or in these, in these communal places where people have built up layers of a connectivity, and let's say you're, you're, you're a boy, you're going fishing, you catch your first fish, you're seven or something like that. You bring it, you're walking, you're carrying it. Everyone, you like, oh, you got your first fish. Wow. Like, you look, you know, all these people will be talking to you about it and it'll make it that something so simple as catching a fish will be meaningful. And that's enough to make you kind of feel like, wow, my life is good. People care about me fishing. And you might decide to fish more. But imagine if you're, if you're in a city and you're a, a, a seven year old, seven year old girl or something like that, and you're trying to go fishing and you catch your first fish. Well, people might say, first of all, there are people who might not even, a lot of people might not even acknowledge it or care about it. Second of all, people might say, why the hell are you out there doing that by yourself, right? Because it's so dang. And also, according to what age you are, you might have a police officer come and tell you, yo, that's illegal. <laughs> you know, you can't fish the river, it's illegal. So there's all these things that start to happen that devalue just about everything that you can do. That you, that human beings, one thing we're really good at is investing all kinds of things with meaning. Like we could, if you and I are like, we're in a room and we had this, this book, Essay on Man by Kassir. We can invest this with so much meaning that this could be like the, uh, every page could be a message from God. Right. I mean, you know, just take a tab of acid and staring at a wall yeah. can have an infinite amount of meaning. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what human beings can do. But one thing that's happened in, especially in um, modern capitalism, but in a lot of cities, is that we're ritualistically and continually stripped of our ability to do that. And then we're, we're handed some things that are that, mm-hmm. that you that you literally have to participate in the, this chain of productivity to get. Yeah. So like if you want if you want to have a nice yacht, because that's what makes you a person, well, then you better get on this productivity train. Another piece I think that's related to this that I've been thinking about a lot recently is just how how short human memory is and how quickly humans can adapt to circumstances and how quickly things can become normalized. I've thought about this a lot recently just with respect to the pandemic, you know, just how you showed someone a photo of all of us wearing masks a year ago, they'd be like, what the hell is going on here? They probably think it was an apocalypse or something. Right, but now it's just second nature. Mm -hmm. And that can happen, I feel like just realizing that fundamental truth, how quickly things can become normalized, that applies to everything. That applies to injustices that are right in your face. That applies mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. masses of homeless people on the street that you have now just taken to be normal. So, you know, people talk about how can all of these mass atrocities throughout history have occurred. People gradually slip into dystopias and it all becomes normalized so quickly that you don't even realize where you are. And and yeah, and human memory is short. So I just, I feel like that's an important thing to realize. Yes. And and that and that speaks to the the fragility of our institutions. How 
you know, changing customs within a four-year period during a certain presidency can have lasting effects because it becomes normalized so quickly. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, there's a lot of good things there too. And that's why I had this question of, that's why I brought up the issue of suicide because it's, it was pointing out the exact same thing that for us, the fact that lots of people kill themselves every day is normal. We mm. accept that, that that's just our reality. And if you ever think about it, considering that how much, how much power our society has in terms of the ability to, to manipulate the brain, material objects, move things around, um, build shelters, provide for human life in certain kinds of ways, it's literally doesn't, it's really crazy. And that's, what, that's I was giving, I was taking up that example that there'll be a time when people look out and are like, yeah, like those people just, everyone was literally just okay with people killing themselves all the time in right. large numbers. And people didn't even think about it too right. much. Um, because there's a certain kind of, there's a certain kind of awareness about human life or, or at least that was, that was, that's not quite there. And it was there before. That's, that's why I draw it in Meryl Durkheim because literally like people were like confused, like why the hell people come? <laughs> like, you know, uh, but that is how these things can change. And a lot of it has to do with, um, to, to, to return to something I do think a lot about has to do with education, right? And that a lot of this history, a lot of this knowledge about how things used to be or how things changed is kept from people, right? You like the thing I told you about suicide, you could literally like, like everybody, people at all ages, maybe not like five-year-olds necessarily, but in some cases, even five-year-olds, it depends on what area of the world or what area of America you're looking at. They have to deal with suicide, right? Or they've had to deal with the possibility of someone on the, on the verge of that or moving towards that. But certainly as every year you get older, your, your relationship to that increases more and more. But we, but we don't ever talk about the fact that people didn't used to do this all the time. Yeah, and I think obviously the coronavirus pandemic has made a lot of these issues that we're talking about so much worse just in terms of making society worse. so much more atomized, making yes. education more difficult through online learning. And, mm -hmm. you know, people have been talking about this. A lot of this is obvious. But, yeah, that sense of community when you're walking down the street with the fish, that doesn't exist in a world where we're all locked in our apartments, not interacting with one another. We have masks on. And the only human interaction that we have a lot of times is just through the insane social media machine. Oh man, And Don't I, this is another thing that. I want to talk about with you. I feel yeah. like social media in large part is destroying society. Yeah. And I mean that literally. It's, it's not, it's not that good. It's not good at all. It's horror. It's an outrage machine. It's, it's one large road rage phenomenon where you don't have to engage with the common humanity of another person. It's, it's, it's. A, it's a, it's a an epistemic trap where you become trapped in these echo chambers and and you know so much fake news circulates it's not that that's part of the issue but that stems from another issue and that issue is there's been a, a ongoing attempt since um, Edward Bernays Freud's nephew came in the 1920s and created public relations and said yo put coke bottles in movies you know, to influence people, there's been an ongoing effort to commodify consciousness, right? To, to be able to take, to figure out metrics of, of evaluating conscious activity and being able to sell that to other people in ways right. that it can be manipulated, right? This has been an ongoing effort in lots of ways. And Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter. They've done there's there's a lot that's there that's helped. Um, none of this to say that all of this is bad. There's been there's a lot that's there that's helped people form. Yeah. Some people will call them sometimes they're echo chambers, but they're also sometimes genuine communities. Support uh, people groups. who can't who can't meet as many people like them, and also there's been a lot of spreading of information that wouldn't have been spread so fast. During but, the Arab Spring is an example of that, where yeah. a lot of the protesters were able to use social media channels to spread information about the protest that the government would have otherwise suppressed. Yeah, but those things are quickly reaching their limitations because after the Arab Spring, everybody put that in their little every you know, every government official put that in a little book. Not not just the Arab nations, Americans, British, Chinese. They're all like, oh yeah, okay, we got to figure that one out, right? Um, and now they're they're aware of it. Um, but what I think it does is that it's, it's a, it's a medium of, so for example, you and I, we're in person and we're interacting. There are custom norms of interfacing, right? Of our, of our consciousnesses, right? Being in a similar space, right? There are norms, language being one of them, cultural norms of interacting. But what a lot of social media websites do is they are particular interfaces for that kind of interaction and they highlight and, and like rarefy to very particular points of human reaction, of interaction, and they keep giving them repeatedly, 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 mm-hmm. right? And so you get, you get that because human beings, as humans, we depend on social interaction. That dependency, which is just healthy, it's just what human beings do, gets turned into a dependency in the other way of like a substance, like a crutch that you need to navigate things that you're not satisfied with in your life or unhappy with, or that you can focus on projecting a certain image of yourself continually. And, and then also right. you get a lot of little hits of, of, of things happening very fast. That dopamine. Exactly. And that's that, what I said. It literally, it literally is addiction. Yeah. Right. They're cultivating they're, they're, they That's what I said. A lot of these guys, they found a way to make um, social interaction, something we are deeply, deeply invested and dependent on is deeply meaningful to us. They found it to, they found ways to loop it into patterns of compulsion. Yeah, Tristan Harris, who's a former design ethicist at Google, talks a lot about this, about yeah, just the about dangers him. of the online attention economy and how, yeah, they've systematically gamed your attention. Yes. And I think that also, this is another area where capitalism can have bad at least epistemic consequences like yes. the dangers of surveillance capitalism right where all these tech companies know what you want better than you know what you want and that's fine if you're if you're shopping for goods on Amazon but it's not good if you're shopping for news because it's just feeding you back that same whatever culture war political narrative that you want so it's and also it's also fine when you have access to um very well entrenched and supported means of like continual self growth and healing um, and and increasing self-awareness and self-realization. When you have those processes going on, that system isn't so bad. But the one of the problems is for me to know what you want and be able to predict what you want, you can't be changing too fast. Yeah. Right. So there becomes an, there becomes a, these, these tech companies have an investment, a certain kind of conservatism as in slowing things down or blocking certain kinds of like um, 
radical changes or radical forms of awareness because when they erupt out as they have as you can we can give their examples of um different forms of realizations of, of inner human life or connectivity or human environmental relations when they when they erupt and emerge no one can really do come to these moments where become incredibly i would say impossible to predict and suddenly people have to be like oh we actually don't know how this is going to happen how this is going to play out and you yeah. want as few of those moments as possible and if you're really good at it and i do think there are people that when i think when i look at someone like jeff bezos looking into um psychedelics um, i see someone because why would why would a trillionaire who doesn't really seem like he cares about anybody <laughs> uh why, or why would he be in why would he want to research psychedelics i hadn't heard about that he's done some research on it one one would be that he is he recognizes that it's that it's popular and he wants to kind of commodify those processes in certain kinds of ways. Yeah. But two, he wants to be able to be in control of these processes of of um, self actualization, right? So that he can have a he probably wouldn't call it Amazon that would be a little too but it would be some company that would have these kind of like dosages of. Uh, um, mushrooms and acid and then you would have like you could even probably even choose different kinds of like experiences that you want and you <laughs> kind of have a certain kind you know like, yeah. and they guide you to you know and that seems good on paper and everything's I, bought from Amazon Everything. yeah it seems, it seems good on paper it's not that's what the idea in itself isn't terrible but you don't that kind of thing shouldn't necessarily be so like shouldn't be like so McDonaldized or commodified right yeah and the problem is there are just so many benefits to these technologies like one concern for part of my dissertation i'm looking at how near future cognitively intrusive technologies might and like brain computer interfaces and augmented oh. reality systems and the philosophical <laughs> so implications of those so you're definitely working with susan then right yeah yeah <laughs> but um yeah like facebook is working on some brain computer interface that of course. Of course they'll be they able are. to sell and that just makes there's problems of surveillance capitalism that we've been talking about so much worse because now theoretically they can directly extract neural data yeah, from you and use that to you know commodify it in different ways yeah that's what they're yeah, literally they're figuring like we've even like we've even figured out how to we even we've even figured out how to kind of modify dna right yeah. ancestry.com which was bought by for <laughs> 4.7 billion dollars that means they that's a lot of money like <laughs> maybe you know i don't know a lot of people listening but you know i don't have 4.7 billion dollars that i can spend on anything and these people chose to spend it on a trove of DNA. And you don't spend $4.7 billion unless you don't think you're going to make a lot more than that. Yeah. So they are Ancestry.com and these other people working together to figure out, like, well, how, what's, what can we sell to other people about our own DNA? And they figured out there's a lot of things that they can sell or that they think they will sell. But they have to have enough that they, um, that they would make that purchase. And who knows what kinds of technologies are coming Obviously, medic medication is one, but there are all kinds of technologies that that uh, that you can call them of surveillance. Though, of course, the the um, the um, the euphemism term is often security, um, and other things like that too. And but that and that's when for me one of the problems with uh, with capitalism is that it's yeah. not so much like also issues like the questions about property and stuff like that. But there's this continual urge to like commodify and sell that seems to know no bounds and the people who are in charge seem to have no interest in 
renegotiating those things, right? That some things are just worth, it gets back to me from my research, some of the notions of the sacred, right? That some things are worth, sacred is related to the word sacrifice, mm -hmm. that some things are worth sacrificing for. Yeah, right? no, and I totally agree with those critiques of capitalism. Like there are certainly some things that are commodified that should not be commodified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are environmental problems that, mm -hmm. that capitalism is making worse mm -hmm. because it's not in the, the monetary interests of any of these companies to solve them, right? Mm -hmm. These, uh, what, what do they call it? External effects or whatever. But yeah, but um, I don't know. Obviously, I've been spending a lot of time on social media recently, and it's just so disheartening. Just the the culture war and the bad faith uh, interactions, and it seems like each side accuses the other side of being a grifter. You know what a grifter is? It's when no. someone is just... Uh, oh, being disingenuous, basically. Yeah, being disingenuous, and they're just articulating views for their crowd or for money. And I feel yeah. like a lot of these times, people like whether you disagree with them or not, like people are authentic. And but the that, basic... But I would say one thing real quick. Yeah. To, that's a problem with the platforms themselves. Like Literally what you're saying, the fact that they're commodity, the fact that you can even make that argument implies that that's going on, those platforms, too Right, much. there's certainly some of that going on. But yeah. I'm saying that like there are lots of... there. People have often did that, but the fact that that becomes the immediate thing that you throw at someone, that tells you how cheap these platforms are in terms of like supporting general communication, that people know that these platforms are mainly about making money. Right? right, I can get followers. Followers give me some people purely seek followers for attention, but beyond that, there's both. Usually, it's attention, but also if you get enough followers, and Twitter for Twitter, it's followers. Followers is a is a is a kind of I wouldn't say a metaphor, but a representation of people's awareness. If you get enough followers, that means that you can influence them, mm -hmm. and therefore, if you have enough followers, we will pay you to do whatever Bernays talked about. In the 1920s, hold a Coke bottle when you go to this place. We'll pay you for that. Right? right. So even if it's not an accurate assumption, in a lot of cases, it's not an unreasonable assumption. Just it's given not, the system. Yeah, it's not. It's, and it's the structure it's, of it. And that tells you that the, this system is just failing. It's not. I've talked about this a couple of times with different people. Is that any political society or culture needs institutions that make the life for all that culture continue? We're a democracy. Democracy, I mean, people disagree how, to the extent we are, but ideally we're a democracy, right? And that means that the, found, and this is why Rawls and Nozick even did their experiments and the, their thought experiments in the first place, right? Is because the, the justification for our civilization comes from, um, from um, social collaborative consensus, right? That's where the justification for our system comes. That's why we have voting, right? That there's a certain amount of collective consensus that justifies the government. And that collective consensus is so important, we have to do it regularly. We can't just, it's not just like, like, you know, Thomas Hobbes tried to sneak it in by saying, like, the people decided they needed a king way back before civilization began. And we can't undermine their initial realization about what a political order is based on. <laughs> right? The king is the representative of the will of the people. Right. And they figured out a long time ago that life sucks. And if you don't have some type of secure Nasty order, Brutus in short. In short, if you don't have some like some person to like some like strong order, 
you're going to have all these terrible things happen. And so they decided collectively, because, you know, Hobbes had to fight against, he was like, he was, you know, he had to fight against these like crazy, you know, radicals. Like, I don't know exactly who his com com uh, compatriots were, but people like Thomas Jefferson, people like, you know, these people who are writing all this idea, like people should choose to live for themselves how they want to. And they, humans are the source of the government's legitimacy. And they're like, what? Those are some damn good arguments, like you know. And so Hobbes is like, "Don't worry." But it's like, funny they were—you're saying they're perceived as radicals back then. Yeah, they because were. They were radicals. They were. And Tom, but Thomas Hobbes is like, "Wait, I got it." Like that now is true. The conservatives. Now that's the conservative. There line. is true that there was this consensus, but that consensus wasn't supportive of the king, um, because basically what, what was taken apart was the divine right of the king. Right? Mm. They said it's not God; it's humans that generate a society's authority, mm. and so there need to be a way to figure out how. The king could be justified from humans' rational thought, as opposed to God's mandate and things like that. But, but, um, but if but if we're going to base our society's legitimacy on collective collaboration and consensus, that process is only as good as the people who are doing it, right? And so that means that we need you need institutions, and not and think is dialogue is a skill, listening is a skill, right? Um, you, you, can, you can be better or worse at those things. Um, critical thinking is a skill. Um, projecting from evidence into the future is a skill. People, people of all stripes do it, some do it very well, but you need institutions that cultivate those things in people and for, an, and for United States, as in a lot of other uh, liberal societies, that institution was the school, right? the university and the K through 12. Why did we, cause go back to, this is, I had this in mind for a while, but to go back to what you were talking about, about healthcare, why the hell do we build all these schools that people go to for free? In a sense of free, in the sense of people's tax dollars, right? right? And a lot of those same people don't like Medicare for all, they also don't like public schooling. <laughs> um, but, but there's a notion that there's, there's, if you're in a democracy, it's like a baseline Good is one word of putting it, but it's almost like structural. Like if you don't have people who are getting good education or good exposure to ideas, you your democracy is not going to work. It's going to start to fall apart. Well, yeah, that's another problem. I feel yeah. You see, so you talk about uh, you hit upon two things, or at least two things that are crucial for democracy: one, collaboration, and two, trust in institutions. And I feel like. Social media is deranging collaboration and the ability for both sides of the political aisle to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And on the institutional front, there seems to be this crisis of institutional faith yes. in America. Yes. Where, and and, not, and, and would, not for bad reasons either. Well, yeah. Not, yeah. I think some of it's definitely well-founded. Mm -hmm. I think some of it's probably born upon conspiracy thinking. Mm -hmm. But it seems to range across... A range of different institutions, government, yes. especially journalism. And I think yeah. even more concerning this year, possibly science, too, with respect to uh, scientific knowledge that we have about the coronavirus, with respect to people saying that the coronavirus is a hoax and mm -hmm. all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen um, all these. This isn't new. Like there's the people who think climate change is a hoax. There are the anti-vaxxers. There's all these things. But yes, yes. Yeah, if you if there, and I, I do agree that a lot of it is well founded, but that seems to be a huge problem. And 
I don't think Trump is the cause of a lot of this, like some people think. I think Trump is more no, of a he's symptom. Not. He's definitely a symptom. Yeah, he's definitely a symptom Trump, of a lot of things that were Trump already wasn't broken. even that involved in that much of this stuff before he started doing the birther thing with right. Obama. And I think he probably put a lot of money into building this. Like I think, I think um, the race, the racist, classist reaction among to be to be most to be majority white conservatives. Like I mean, those are the, the majority of those people who are reacting that way. That was something that was cultivated by a lot of people because it 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 would enable those people to be controlled. And it would enable those people to be commodified, right? In terms of, because that's another thing that happened with media is that the news is now commodity, right? I watched this documentary called Good Night, Good Luck about Walter Cronkite, and it's kind of golden era of, of news. The objective journalist. Yeah. And though I'm not that big on the notion of objectivity, um, um, what's important is that a lot of, a lot of, stations like CBS and stuff, they would take a loss on the news. They would take a loss because they thought as a, a public service, right? It was something that you could say it was even, it was in a certain way sacred, right? Yes. It was something worth sacrificing for, right? Having someone come up, give, an, uh, give as best as possible a kind of unbiased account of facts that happened in the world, that was something that was worth sacrificing for, right? Even if that unbiased account of facts isn't the best for your financial interests. Yes, but you see, but this is what, what you're looking at is the media, for example, being an institution that is essential to a, a, a successful, positive communal deliberation, mm -hmm. right? If everyone has a shared, a sense, pretty good, sense, clear sense of what facts are, being represented by a media person, well then we can have a better discussion, even if we have debates, we can reference a point that we can we we feel is a justified source of information. So Walter Cronkite, I don't know who else was doing it, but he was he was he was one of them. In places like his his station took a loss. They would pay him, they would pay the people, they would pay the studios, and they wouldn't make a profit on it. Right? Yeah. They'll make a profit on other things that would balance that. But now one thing that's happened is that the news has to make a profit too. Yeah. In the news, the the sharing, and this is where the Twitter is linked in the but the media has done it too. Twitter, Facebook, MSNBC, Fox News, a lot of these other news stations, CNN, have figured out how to make the news into something that can draw people's attention, which is the main way that consciousness, that this, this is what consciousness being, as the process of commodification occurs, what it looks like is increasingly you're you're being focused on your immediate attention and having your attention be direct all kinds of places, right? They're fighting for your attention. They're fighting different things. They're fighting for your attention, and figuring out how to keep your attention for as long as possible, but not to give you anything, but to take something from you. Yeah. To, to basically make you, to to make you want to buy a certain product or to consume a certain. And they, like I said, they figure all kinds of sly ways where it's like, oh, you have a million followers. Wear these jeans on your one of your next, you know, TikTok things, right? Yeah, it's and I feel like both sides of the political aisle agree on this. They agree that the news is no longer truth driven; it's completely narrative driven. It's like a TV show where they're just propelling their narratives. And yes. I think, in a weird way, 
social media and mainstream media have almost become infused where a lot of these journalists are now also social media personalities and the distinction between them being a social media personality and an opinion commentator and a journalist is kind of blurred. So like everything's kind of just blurred together. But I will say that. And it's all about narrative. But what I will say as far as I know is that Fox News is the one who really started this because they... um, um, with their whole notion of like fair, like what was their, they don't even say this anymore, but remember that was their old slogan, fair and balanced. That's not even their slogan anymore. But it used to was be, it? I, I it used to be fair and balanced. Yeah. That was their slogan. And when they first, because the idea was that we need to be, we should have a certain, the, the normal media has a left bias. Therefore, we need a media that has a right bias in it and the very act of the very act of being more biased is being fair and balanced. Yeah. And so you get almost like an Orwellian turn of phrase, right? Where it's like, in order to be more fair and balanced, we have to be more biased. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That might be right with respect to the origin of it. But as of now, like I view MSNBC as the equivalent of Fox News on the left. Like I just view it as the propagandist network of the left in my eyes. And I just like. I would say it's a propaganda outlet of, of left liberalism. Of Okay, of yeah. left liberalism? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I definitely would say that, because there's a lot of people that they're not going to bring that are on, oh, that are on the, yes, on the yes. left. The, yeah. Well, yeah, I think the more progressive Bernie Sander wing of the party yeah. hates the, that's what I'm saying. The, you know, they view them as neoliberal corporatists yeah, exactly. and all that. That's, and that's who they are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's know, what I'm saying. That's, agree. So I'm saying that's that's their they're the propaganda wing for like for that ne- for segment a ne- for a neoliberal corporatist structure, and and the progressives don't have any real representation in media. No, and Fox <laughs> News is also funny enough, funny enough, a media outlet for neoliberal corporatists. It's right. just some of the ideological differences. Between just a little more conservative. Some of the some of the ideological differences of the people at top comes down to this. And they want to manipulate people to do certain things. Like there are people who have billions of dollars who think we should have abortion. And there are people who have billions of dollars that don't think we should have abortion. Yeah. They, neither of them want a conversation of whether or not we should have capitalism. But they're fine with us having... They, they are really invested in the idea of whether or not we should have abortion. And so they've created ways of, of, of generating changes in people's consciousnesses so that they can get them to do what they want. And they've figured out that if they can influence and structure the media very well then and so but people are becoming aware of that but because we don't have any other real strong institutions like i I remember thinking i was talking like there's no like for example we should have like um we should we should have schools were i think i still think schools are one of the institutions but um the other one i mean before was like you would have the church was a community institution but in a democracy it seems like we should have an actual place that you can go that people that people build and set up that you get exposed to different ideas and worldviews and there's regular like dialogues or lectures. I mean, this is post ideally a university, right? Um, and this is how these function. But if you're, um, um, and that's why, for example, why universities are very important, right? You should have a place that you can go to receive all kinds of information, have discussions, have debates, gain knowledge, and increase your capacity to understand the world. But if we're not gonna have a school, I feel like we could have we could have more than a school, right? Because universities have a whole universities also have particular things that are great, but are not necessarily a place where they're not necessarily places where everyone can go or anyone can say what they want and talk to other people. Maybe we don't want that. But 
I remember um, when um, his name is Wentrich. I think he was he's came to UConn. He was trying to copy that Milo Yiannopoulos, and like it was like he had the "It's okay to be white" thing, which was purely yeah. like like disturb reactionary things. And I remember I was he's talking, like this. Milo is like a far right wing kind of troll. Yeah, and Wentrich was trying to follow his footsteps. And he came to Yukon and people were like protested through rocks. Someone, st- uh, uh, someone stole his speech off his, his counter and he like tackled the lady. Oh, I remember reading about yeah, this, this lady yeah. stole, grabbed one up and grabbed his speech. And then she like, he like tackled her. Um, all in all, not a good thing, but, but that was during the freedom of speech era. People, oh my God, I don't care about freedom of speech. And I remember I was talking <laughs> to my students and they're like, yeah, but they're suppressing his ideas. And I was like, what ideas? Like, what are his ideas? And they're like, I don't know. Like, I was like, yeah, like, that's not like he did what he came for. He yeah. came to prey upon you guys to create controversy so that he could get a book or make money or become a new face among these other people. He didn't come to you guys would have known you guys would have a better sense of what his ideas were. Right. Yes. Hold, hold on. Hold that. I want to hold that point and get back to it, but I want to return quickly to um, the media point. And I yes. just want, I just want to say that with the with the RNC and the DNC, I don't know if you've been watching that over the past two weeks or so. Not really. But I've, I've watched some of it, mm-hmm. and it's been so infuriating to watch. It just kind of feeds into a lot of what we've been talking about, how it's all about narrative and it's all about performance. And one thing that really aggra- aggravates me about the current political moment is that I want more policy-driven politics. Neither side is offering substantive policies for how they're going to make your life better. Right? Because a lot the, of people don't care about policy. Right. It's, it's all like the DNC, the whole message is Trump is bad, Orange Man is bad, and, and you have to elect us because if you don't, then the United States of America is going to slip into authoritarianism and fascism. And I agree that there is some definitely genuinely scary authoritarian aspects yeah, to Trump. Definitely risk of that. Yeah, I'm not denying that there's not. But I'd also like to see, okay, you know, they're like, you know, Trump is completely responsible for 170,000 American deaths. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what, what's your plan for how to fix it? Right? And there's, nev- there's never that like policy unveiling. Okay, well, here are the things we would have done differently. Here are our policies. Yeah, you're, you're, you are a particular demographic that they would... Um, they would find other ways of reaching out to you through certain kinds of like journals or or media or like newspapers, some that you might not even think are that they will try to influence. They will try to connect to you in that way. And they're probably not doing enough job, but that, but the DNC as large scale politics in general, it's it's not really about, it's not really about that in a certain sense. It, It could be more about that. But a lot of people just aren't interested in that for, for various reasons, um, because a lot of these people are, are disconnected from the political process. Right. Yeah. So the, the inner the inner workings of policy and that like is not something that they're that concerned about, because I just like, why are more people concerned about it? I don't because it, because you need to be people are politically disconnected. Right. If you if you're if you're if you're from an early age connected into the politics and you are taught to here's what this does you get a chance to maybe make some policy or inf- talk about policy you're gonna be way more invested in that process but a lot of people what they're looking for is a vision being communicated 
they're looking for um, um, certain kinds of affirmations being expressed. But what, what you've mentioned is one of the problems in that this comes back to this question of faith, right? And that in our society, for our democracy, a lot of these policy things have just been offloaded to experts, right? And the idea is that you just trust that the person who wins is pretty competent in executing what they want, right? And that has been pretty. I mean, if you if you look at a lot of a lot of the past p- political um, things that have happened, that's generally been the case. Is that for better or for worse, the person elected usually has gotten a lot of things done, and if they didn't, you just you vote them out, right? But but I think what you're talking about, and especially with this question of media and um, social media, is this sense in which people are to a certain extent, reaching a limitation and how the information platforms that we get actually allow us to have the kind of conversations and have the kind of awarenesses that actually will really improve our society and not allow us to just be like manipulated all the time. Um, but that's, but one thing that happened is that Paul, you know, I mentioned Edward Renes from Floyd, Freud's nephew who brought the idea of public relations and, and mass marketing advertising. One thing that started happening is that politicians increasingly, increasingly started playing from that playbook. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't have to, to, cause to come out with a strong vision and to come out with bold policy proposals, that's risky, right? If your goal is to win, um, what you can do is try to hit a sweet spot in what people find meaningful or what they feel they value and then just be that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, definitely politics has also become commodified. And maybe I am out of touch with the average voter, but I guess what a lot of what what a lot of other people would see as a vision and affirmation, I perceive as empty political platitudes and mm-hmm. promises. Like we need the best of America. We need, you know, we we need to unify and see the light and not the darkness. I'm like, what are you going to do to make the country better? And the RNC was even Darker in a lot of respects. They are. Of course they are. Yeah, I mean, their whole their whole stick fry, is fire and brimstone. Right. Yeah. Look, Antifa is going to lead to anarchism if Joe Biden becomes president, <laughs> and Joe Biden is a Trojan horse for the radical left. So we're also going to get communism and anarchism at the same time. I really, so, I really hope Joe Biden is a Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah. Our, right. If only he was a Trojan horse. Our, I'm I'm fine with anarchists or communists <laughs> taking over. Right. So that's their stick. And then or on the other side, anarcho-communist. That, that's your political ideology. No, no, I'm just saying. It's a joke about combining the two. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, fine yeah. with them, too. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, obviously there's that's there's nothing there either. But it's, again, yeah, it's, you know, there, there's this one saying about how politics is downstream of culture. But mm-hmm. in my mind, there is no distinction between politics and culture anymore. Politics, the culture war is politics in this current political moment. And I guess mm-hmm. I would think that if you're just talking about it from... What's the most politically pragmatic thing to do? Maybe you're you are right. Maybe people don't want to get bogged down with the nuances of policy details. But I, I would think that they would instead yeah, so of just I, being fed these empty say, platitudes and these culture that, war narratives. When I say that, I don't mean that because they wouldn't be interested in. They, I just mean that there's not enough structural support for that to occur. Right. So, like I said, if you're working a lot, you got multiple kids. Where do you have the time to really? dig into policy and look at it. Like I've always thought that there should be people who are paid to like 
um, um, like watch C-SPAN and record stuff and disseminate it to people or that there could be working committees or let's say this, this can be an institution, a university for me, a university could do this, but other, another institution could too, where you pay people to come once a week and you, you bring up certain kinds of policies and people kind of look into it and talk about it and discuss it. Right. But if you're not going to provide either time or money and usually in this time is money, right? So if you're not going to provide that for people, this is back to the case of what's worth sacrificing for, right? If you're not going to provide that for people, um, they're, and very rightly so, not going to um, spend too much time um, really investing in a lot of these policies and things like that. They just have to, they just have to do like, okay, so you're going to do this. You say you're going to do this. Okay. And this is why, for example, why Trump was one why George Bush won is that it did come down. People felt like I could sit down and have it with Bush. People said, I feel like I could sit down and have a beer with this guy. Right. But Trump, people felt like they could trust him. Right. In right. a weird, in a weird way. Yeah, he's like a and fake they could, outsider con artist that played upon the real, uh, exactly. concerns that people were having. Exactly. But people felt they could trust him as a person. Right. And that's, and yeah. And the question is in a democracy, should that be what our politics is about? And if it's not, what do we need to do realistically to make it so that it's about, and it has to do with investing into people. I guess my, my hope is just, uh, I definitely agree that people watching, no one wants to watch C-SPAN. So I guess my hope is that no. you could make the policy stuff more sexy, right? You could, uh, so people are more inclined to consume that kind of content instead of just being addicted to the culture war stuff. I would say just pay people or support people, however you do that, into processing all this stuff like that, right? Lawyers are, because I say lawyers because a lot of the people in politics were lawyers, right? Um, some are business people, a lot of them are lawyers. Um, lawyers and business people, but politicians are deeply invested because they know that they are actualizing power, that they're moving the needle on the world, right? And in the United States. And they're and they're and they're fighting for various interests, so they're deeply invested in this process. And there has to be a form of education or political cultivation that makes it so that people are much more invested in that process. But that means you have to actually give mechanisms for them to have real influence on politics, right? One of the reasons why people are so comfortable with these kinds of symbolic gestures is because a lot of people are aware that they're disconnected from the political process, right? They know that a lot of things they deeply want, they have to kind of put a lot of their eggs into one basket. But for example, but local politics is actually very, very important. And our local yeah. political world is also not very good. But that's the kind of handoff you get is that you don't have to be, on the one hand, you don't have to invest as much in your local political life. But on the other hand, you are generally a lot less empowered, right? Because things can build from the bottom up yeah. a lot easier than people think. Um, well, I feel like, I, um, you know, I haven't really been around long enough to know whether this is really a trend, but one trend that I think I've perceived is it seems like local politics has 
in large part disappeared or hasn't played as great of a role in people's lives as it used to. And it seems like everyone is just consumed with national politics. Yes. Maybe some of this has to do with social media and the disappearance of the newspaper industry, for example. Right. But it seems like that's what everyone is focused on, which is kind of disheartening because as you say local politics are so important and oftentimes it's local politics that are making the decisions that actually affect your lives the most but you're so consumed in the national narrative of the day yeah and the um the creators of this country drawing upon resources and political ideas from all around the world and the americas from all different kinds of peoples um, crafted a system that actually has a lot of pretty good mechanisms for this kind of local power engagement, like their state level, county level, city level, block level, neighborhood level of politics, that there's actually a large influence you can have on your own life and in fact, the way that, and I would, I, I would argue the fact the way that people should be looking at these higher level politics is the way that a lot of businesses and things look at higher level politics. When you have these projects, you have these goals you're actively trying to accomplish, and those are intersecting with federal level power. And you're trying to figure out how can we use the mechanisms of power on a federal level to help our own cause and i don't want to be negative but also to hinder the cause of others whose causes are counter to our own that's how a lot of these elites look at politics right they have this plan of like okay i want to you know we want to do this deal in beirut but we need certain things to happen in order for that to occur because it turns out that um, someone that's in our alumni network at Harvard now is from Beirut and now has this position in this place here and we can make something happen that we couldn't make happen before. But as long as, as long as the United States has an embargo, we can't make that happen. So we need to figure out which political candidates can push to remove that embargo, one. And two, what do we, how do we need to start framing this issue to influence people to be for it? Yeah. Now, the thing is, every person should be able to have that kind of attitude about politics. The problem is that once you get out of these higher level institutional structures, there's a lot of focus on the individual. That like You personally have this kind of project or thing you want to do for you and your family, maybe. But that's not enough of a force. Really, people should be a part of movements or institutions or things that they create, which people were, but it's become people are becoming more item, uh, atomized where they can have goals or agendas or projects of like, you know, we're really invested and so we're in Willamette, Connecticut right now. And imagine Willamette, Connecticut is really invested in revitalizing an industry or some kind of industry. So they want to, um, I don't know have some type of new enterprise, right? But 
And people are actively working to try to build that at, and talking to people on the state level. And then when there's an election at the federal level, people can be like, oh, wow, we have these projects that we're really, really invested in that we want to make happen. And now we need to figure out how policies are going to impact us, how things are going to. So um, Paulo Freire, he wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he talked about how education is developed as philosophy of education, how it makes people not actional, right? How, how he called the banking model of education where the idea is I have knowledge, I deposit it in your brain, and I'm the one who gets to shape your consciousness. I get to tell you what reality is, right? He says that because what he was doing was um, literacy education of adults in like Brazil, like rural Brazil. And he said that's funny is that people become much more interested in reading when you do, when instead of saying like he said that you teach them things like grass is green, the capital of this is this, like, and, you know, clouds float in the sky, like that's what they have to memorize to learn to read. And like, why would you, that's not why you learn to read. Like if you know how to read, like all, you know, both of us have learned to read and we learned when we were learning to read, it was an active engagement in understanding our world around us that made us want to read. And that's why we learned to read. It wasn't because there was just like these sentences that we were repeating that we wanted, <laughs> we wanted to master them in a technical sense. And then we learned to read. But Freire says, you need to do that same thing with people. In fact, I'm pretty sure he does recommend stuff like if there's laws that are impacting people, they can read to, in the sense of reading will allow you to understand what's going on and to build countermeasures to that. Right. Mm. But if you don't know, if they, if they hand out a notice, says, yeah, we're, you know, taking 10% of your water well, and it's going to increase by 5% over 30 years, and we'll give you this amount of money, and you're just like, okay. And then 30 years later, you don't have, you don't own your water well anymore. But if you can read, you have a certain kind of power access. And, and um, I'm saying that as in the way we educate people makes them not invested and doesn't give them a capacity to organize a political life. And there's a lot of things that are happening, and, and that's where you understand, right? A lot of things are happening, and people do, and other people understand this too, but I just say you as in, not you as in, like you are so, you understand this so much better than so many other people, but just you as person here. You understand that there's lots of things at stake in how these policies are or, talked about, and certain changes can lead have all kinds of implications hidden inside of them, right? If you if you write this policy, but you do this thing this way, fifteen years from now, this whole this thing that seems like a, a unintended consequence could happen, or people can kind of sneak in all kinds of stuff in the way they organize policies themselves. But if you're not, if there isn't a um, active process to say to people, you belong. And you make these, these, you can make these decisions as well. Then, of course, people are going to be. And then you also commodify their consciousness, mm -hmm. right? And you try to gobble up every single thing that they do when they're not working for you, mm -hmm. right? Well, then where's the time? <laughs> you know, like if you if you have to be productive for me, and then not only do your does your body and a certain mind have to be productive for me, your leisure mind also has to be productive for me, yeah. right? When you, cause I think that also, I think a lot is like social, I think a lot of it adds to it cause like it's, it's another level of productivity, right? When you're in terms of like you, you, you go, you work and you go home and basically like people get their consciousness farmed for hours. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And on the educational front, uh, you're just making me think about 
how so many different reforms need to be instituted in our educational system. One that I've been thinking about recently is just how, um, you know, there's so much focus on rote learning, but in a world where you can pretty much get access to any fact just through Google at the moment's notice, I think there should be more focus on teaching people internet literacy skills and technology skills and how to become intellectually virtuous and generally speaking, how to navigate this overwhelming sea of information and content that people are bombarded with on a daily basis. And what you're talking about is, in a certain sense, is research skills and and research um, integrity. And another thing that you made me think about as you were talking is just going back to the the trend towards uh, away from local politics. Like that does strike me as one potential dystopian end state of capitalism. It seems like that there's been a parallel between a shift away from people caring about local news and local politics, and now they're just caring about national news and national politics. There's a parallel between that and also the shift away from, say, small businesses towards large corporations yes. like Amazon. We were talking yes. earlier about how, you know, in the future, Amazon's going to sell everything, including psychedelic drugs. So are yes. we going to live in this atomized society where community is completely evaporated and a few large-scale corporations and media institutions pretty much control all level levers of power because these institutions are the winners of capitalism. Yes. That strikes me as, again, a dystopian state of affairs. I would agree very much. So I think you've laid out a, that's a, that's a nice vision you've, that's, that you're able to see. And, but that's also one of the reasons why, um, federal politics become so important because that literally is the only really way that people can have major changes, right? Because so much power is being concentrated at such high levels of the system, right? Because as you said, Walmart and Amazon, they work at, they work at the um, international level. When I, and they look at the global level, mm-hmm. right? It's not just between certain nations. They work, they have, they work at the global level. Um, and that's a whole nother thing about how this process of democracy or democratization, how does that translate to a global level, which is something that is a worthwhile project that humanity can work on. But we're still wrestling with some of these old things that are kind of holding us back. But um, these companies work at the national and the global level and an international level. And so do states. And yeah, it is often like that's the level people are working at and the the mechanisms of political influence at the most concrete levels to us, local and intermediated of county and state and things like that, are people don't really have a thriving political culture. And that's really, and so for me, a lot of these issues that we see between various like left-wing and right-wing groups, one is that there is a deep devaluation of the other, which I do think that um, but I think we're conservatives and their descendants are the ones who started this. Um, no one asked for um, the whole, all everything that happened in the seventies with Nixon. <laughs> you know, no one asked for that. Um, they realized that they weren't going to win, and they started doing all kinds of things at level of force, ideology, manipulation, and things to plot, like block block that. Yeah, like the that. drug war, the the demonization of hippies and people who were just basically trying to figure out different ways of living. 
yeah. um, the demon, the continued demonization of, of blacks and their criminalization, um, the 50s with the Red Scare, right? This kind of ideological reactionary moment has the, the rights been the one that's been doing that the most, right? Um, I think the problem is just that as people become more and more disempowered in a real sense, they just gravitate to what they actually can do, which is what certain things mean in certain kinds of arenas or certain kind of things like that. And, um, but they're the ones who really dove in and said, yo, this is what politics is about. Politics is about creating and maintaining various forms of like hysteria and paranoia. So what, so you can use power how you want. Maybe we can, uh, you know, end with, uh, this, but what, what's the way forward? Because I don't like one concern, like how do we, I don't know whether breaking out of the two party system would be ideal. But I suspect that it might be, but it seems like there's no way to break out of the two-party system. And one fear that I have is, I don't know what your predictions are for the 2020 election, but I don't think that Joe Biden has as comfortable a lead as a lot of pundits has, have been saying mm-hmm. that he has. Mm-hmm. And you know, one fear that I have is even if Joe Biden wins, he's going to go back to that kind of neoliberal corporatism, which is partly what got mm-hmm. Trump elected. Mm-hmm. And that could pave the way in the future to an even more competent and more dangerous kind of right wing authoritarian figure. And, you know, I personally supported Andrew Yang and Bernie in the primaries. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether there is truth to the idea that Bernie got cheated. It certainly seemed like when Bernie was in the lead earlier in the primaries, the so-called neoliberal corporate establishment kind of just band together all yeah. people just they all dropped out to try to get bernie out exactly so how do like how do we break out of this process and you know one thing that i get annoyed with on the left is i feel like they they don't learn the lessons of their political failures i feel like in a large part a good portion of the liberals have misdiagnosed why exactly trump won it's always well, I guess there are more white wing, right wing nationalists and and racists that that wanted Trump to get elected than we thought. And I certainly think that, that that's is true. I certainly think that's true than they thought for sure. And I certainly think that's a part of it. But I also think that a part of it has to do with automation and and real economic securities that people had that had nothing to do with racism. Well, I would I wouldn't say they had nothing to do with racism. Well, for some people it had nothing to do with racism, but. That's the thing. It's not every like not every single Trump supporter was a no, racist. No. There's cer- saying, that certainly exists. I'm saying it, it has to do with racism in the civic sense. Part of the deal is that you join this caste. This caste is called white. You give up your political power to these elites in this caste, and in exchange, they protect you from those who are outside of that caste, and they secure your um, prosperity in the name of common solidarity, right? There's no real inherent reason. And in fact, if you went back, the further you go back in time, the less and less those same people, the same, like some average person working 10 hours a week would identify with Mitt Romney and see themselves in the same group. If you, the further you go back, the less true that becomes, right? From the further you go forward from that certain point, the more true it becomes. And those people, and this goes back to that question we talked about earlier with moralism, right? Where the idea is that I deserve because of my heritage, my upbringing, my cultural patterns, my rational patterns, the sense that 
I deserve certain things in the world and therefore and I'm willing to do things to protect and support the people who are most likely going to help me get those things. Mm. And now it's turned out that those people aren't going to help me anymore, but I've sacrificed my own political culture, my own power in the name of a certain ideal, of a certain sense of a common race. This is, this is the mind of Trump supporters. I think some of it they're aware of, but some of they're not aware of. They, some of them are not like, some of them are not like, I'm doing this because I hate black people in an explicit sense, but there's a certain kind of caste and cultural system they've invested in that's deprived them of power over the past centuries, right? Um, in exchange for a sense of like, you're not like those people, therefore we're going, we are going to protect you, right? Mm -hmm. Give us power. If you notice, always, there's always, even in the um, 1800s, there was this fear of Eastern European immigrants and Jews coming to America and all kinds of stuff like that. There's always these paranoias of these massive amounts of people, this time it's immigrants from the South, who are a threat to you that you can't handle. And therefore yes. you need us to handle it for you. And so um, race and how it manifests in our consciousness, especially politically, is more than just at the individual level of like, I hate this or that. It's also how you're, you're willing to accept certain kinds of de disempowerment um, in the name of sometimes moral superiority or political protection that since that is told to you can only be manifested on a higher level, right? For example, a lot of people, race, race was a big part of what made people support something like the Patriot Act, right? This notion that there's this massive threat of Muslims right. that, that is so big that you and your community can't deal with it, therefore you need to give the state a lot of authority in order to do so. Because like, the question is why, because the question you have to ask is, why, did, why an authoritarian, right? Why someone who is posing, there's all kinds of alternatives, as we, we mentioned a, quite a few, right? We mentioned, you mentioned anarchism, mentioned um, communism, we mentioned, um, we mentioned like the, theocracies, we're talking about the divine right of kings. Why an authoritarian, right? And why an authoritarian who, why would you, why would you be so okay with an authoritarian that is that's devaluing specific groups of people so strongly yeah is because that very act of saying that shows that i can ex I, I know that you're on you're going to be on my side when it, when it really matters and i think that's my concern let me try to summarize it another way because I, I think that they you know a lot of his supporters they didn't perceive him as an authoritarian i think trump is in a large part a fake populist and i think Mm -hmm. In some sense, we're living in an age of populist politics. Like there is this kind of populist groundswell where people are fed up with the status quo. And, you know, a lot of it just has to do with uh, maybe class and wealth inequality and all these things. And one of my concerns is that, you know, obviously I'm more on the progressive side. Mm -hmm. And I think that progressive left wing populism, the kind of Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. style populism is a good kind of populism. Yeah. And that right wing kind of authoritarian populism is the bad kind of populism. And I think one of my That's concerns true. is that if the neoliberal corporatist establishment keeps suppressing that, what I perceive to be good kind of populism, mm -hmm. then people who might be open to that, who are fed up with the system, are going to gravitate towards that kind of racism and towards that darker right-wing populism. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I guess that's my concern in a nutshell. I think that's, I think that's a good concern because people will... 
And that's why I said it's what you said. Authoritarian populism is correct because it, there was a populist, but people were not. Trump was never positioning himself as a true populist, right? He was a the populist idea that because, he's a man of the people. It's just yeah, he's, <laughs> he he never positioned himself that way. He was a man of some people, yeah, and he made that very clear, right? He made that very clear that some people are a problem, some people are bad, and we should be able to say that. We should be able to organize for society against them explicitly. And that's why I said that's the authoritarian thing, right? right. Bernie Sanders was more like a, a true, genuine populist. I was like, right. um, he spoke in much more general terms. America, the people, we need things that'll be work at a much more broad level among people. He was speaking in more true populist language that some people didn't connect. But at least he was trying from that. Trump was not, a lot of people were just, he was what people call a strong man, right? He was someone who could, who was powerful enough to say what he wanted and do what he wanted. And that made people feel like when he went in there, he could say what he wanted and do what he wanted. Yeah. And he did, he did have populist policies. But I think a lot of authoritarians have populist policies because you have to get the people behind you somehow. It's just you're just much more, you limit who the people are much more than like a genuine um, populist. So what do we do? Do we just get Joe Biden elected and then progressives just have to hold his feet to the fire? Is that the only way forward? The only way forward is I mean, is we should to, definitely get Joe Biden elected, but yeah, the only, the, way, the only way forward is to start building and investing and demanding for A, actual ways to heal ourselves from things that happen to us. So we have greater capacity to, to hear and receive others and to, um, and have the energy to do things that are going to take a lot of energy. And I mean heal at physical and emotional level, right? Medicare, psyche, soul, heart. Second, we have to reinvest in whatever institutions or build institutions that help us have a, a more vibrant and, and engaging political life, right? The neoliberals on both sides of the aisle um, are not invested in that. They're invested in how they can use our political culture to get to us to do what they want, right? And how they can get us to avoid serious structural change, right? After a certain amount, of, it's just, it's not even that really that big of a deal if you think about it. Like after a couple hundred years, any system is probably gonna need some, might need some structural changes, right? Mm -hmm. If a human being's alive for 60 years, you get to a point where you start to need some, you might need some, if you don't take care of yourself in the beginning, you might need some surgeries. Yeah. Right. Um, and some of those things take a lot of energy. Some of them will put you out of work for a few months. But that's just what happens when you put certain strain on the body. A lot of what a lot of neoliberals have done is. In an in, 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 in ability to collect their own power, they put immense, immense strain on our political system um, for a long time. I mean, I would add that even before that, certain things like um the race system and class systems already putting strain on a, democ a democracy. They're putting immense strain on it, which would erupt, which would lead to things that are clear failures like immense poverty, concentrated poverty, riots. And I don't mean, I don't mean riots as in people shouldn't be actualizing themselves, but that, um, that there's such a repression of people's political expression and, and agency development that they just have to take it how they can take it. Right. And you can't and there's no fault in them for taking it how they can how they can take it if you're not going to give it to them. 
it'd be one thing if like there was this robust political culture and people have these channels and avenues and they're and they're fighting and negotiating and then people just start rioting then you'd be like well that's a devaluation and, an, and a threat to our system but if you don't give them anything i mean they're gonna have to they're gonna have to take it at some point otherwise they're just gonna die right in various ways so we have to invest in i would say schools and universities is one of a big place but we might need some new institutions um that some of them might be online some of them might be i i would say it's much better that they be in person and have things like food and other things that make people gather and connect to discuss um ideas and to discuss and be invested in politics and that these things need to be something that we sacrifice for right that these are things like walter cronkite right that companies and other people should pay if you want to have a democracy it's like there's certain things you need to have right and that's just that i think like dewey john dewey said it very well he said that america we had our democracy but our democracy has been relatively easy i mean obviously he's not speaking about the racial dynamics but definitely an institutional sense. It's been pretty easy because we have two oceans to protect us. And we were able to, he doesn't say this, but I think we also were able to completely dominate Latin America. But basically we have no threats. We had, we had no threats really from the South, except for invented ones, the, the, the result of our own economic policies, right? We don't really have any threats from the South. We don't have any threats from the West. We don't really have any threats from the East. And so it's, it's pretty easy to have a democracy that has, that has, but I would add democracy that has serious flaws when you don't have any threats. But he says that around the time of the 50s, and he's against communism, but I don't think he's wrong about what he's saying, is that we have to now make the choice of whether or not we really, really want democracy or not. Because democracy is not easy. <laughs> democracy is hard. Democracy is something that it can be easier as technology makes life easier, but it takes a lot of investment for you, an average citizen, to know enough about certain things going on in the world or in their own nation that you can vote for somebody to make a decision about it. And what we've done is that we've, we've, we've gravitated more towards a technocracy where certain people have technical skills in law or politics or economics, and then they get attached to certain figures who then influence people to make certain decisions. But if we really want a robust democracy, which I think we do, um, I'm invested in that. It seems like we need to really, we really have to invest in people. We really have to invest in cultivating spaces for people to gather. We really have to invest in people having the time and money and resources to really think through and, and talk about certain things and to go out to vote and all these things like that. We really have to invest a lot and sit and decide we want this. And I think that's what Dewey, Dewey would say is that we're at a moment where we have to decide do we want this or not. And there are people um, on the uh, much more, much more active on the right, but a few on the left, who are kind of seriously questioning whether or not they want this because it hasn't, because it's starting to disappoint them, right? Um, or it's disappointed them too much already. But if we want this, it's going to come with a price, right? And we have to decide if we want to pay that price or not, because if we don't pay the price, we're not going to keep this system around for longer. It's just, it's just not going to work. People are, why would people want to invest in it? Right. If you're going to act authoritarian and manipulate people's 
minds all day and try to influence them to making decisions and not give them any real power, then they probably just pick a real authoritarian <laughs> that's going to that's going and give him enough power, like Leviathan style, to bully um, the 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 capitalist elite. But Trump actually is not that figure. He is actually deeply entrenched in the capitalist elite. He just yeah. probably is a more of a bit of an outsider in a real sense. I'm sure a lot of those people don't really associate with him too much besides or it's necessary. One hope that I have, if there is any, uh, just kind of piggyback off of what you just said, if there is any silver lining that emerges just from the chaos and instability and madness of 2020. It's that maybe some people have realized that the arc of history doesn't necessarily bend towards justice, right? And it's not like we can just sit back and watch history unfold as we hurdle towards the utopia, because it's, it seems like it seems increasingly clear that all of our institutions are extremely fragile and democracy is extremely fragile and that things can go seriously wrong and civilizations can fall again, again, it kind of circles back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, when our democracy has held in place for a certain amount of time it becomes normalized and you just think, well, it's always going to hold in place. But then you realize like, wait, all of these civilizations throughout history, some of the greatest civilizations, or the biggest civilizations, the most powerful civilizations, you know, ancient Rome, the Egyptians, they lasted so much longer than the United States of America and they fell. Civilizations rise and fall. So nothing's guaranteed. And I feel like in some ways in the modern world, civilization is even more unstable than it's ever been compared to previous civilizations, partly because of our technological powers. I'd say things are moving faster. Right, yeah, things are moving faster. Nuclear weapons, like the fact that there hasn't been more widespread violence. I mean, just think about, you know, we could develop, you know, it, it, maybe in the near future there could be, it could be that, you know, some tech-savvy individual in their basement could have the know-how to develop some chemical weapon or some nuclear weapon, so it doesn't take the resources of an entire state. And within any so within any population of millions of people, there are going to be some deranged individuals that want to cause mass destruction, and that could, you know, release some biochemical weaponized pandemic to the world. It's just our we have so much technological power. I would be and no wisdom. Exactly, but I would be careful about calling them deranged. I would say that there there yeah, are people misc- there are people with immense intellectual capability who as many of us are are being deeply wounded by this the systemic things we have in place and take it back to the question of suicide not everybody who's who's ready to commit suicide is just going to go by themselves because they have a statement to make about their life right yeah that their life matters their life is meaningful but they have a right against this system to destroy it, destroy people who are, they project as part of it. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that some of them are deranged, but a lot of them are just deeply, deeply, um, harmed. And they're, they're the same types of things that we, that we've lobbied about at this system right now. They're aware of some of these things, but they genuinely don't see a way forward. All they see is, 
I want to act in a way. I want to lash out. I want to feel like I matter. I want to hurt people who hurt. All these things. That, that's why I started with healing. Mm-hmm. Right. I have these deep wounds or traumas that have happened to me. And I want to do something that makes me feel like I have power. I want to do something that hurts the people who hurt me. It's all a part of the. I don't think that's deranged. I, in, in a sense of like, in, in aspect of, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, I do think it's a problem. And I do think it's wrong, but I'm not sure it's, I wouldn't say those people are just deranged or just. Yeah. Well, there's being, there's a lot of dark places that are growing that you can go online and find a bunch of people yes. who will tell you that your life is not worth living in lots of different ways. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. You're right. And like a lot of it, either. a lot of these people are socially isolated and a lot of it again ties into this culture of clout and fame and commodification that we've been discussing this entire podcast what's one of the easiest ways to become famous in america go into a crowded place and shoot a bunch of innocent people right so yeah like that's that's a problem and i do think it's good that a lot of uh, media companies have now refused to publish the name of a lot of these mass shooters and stuff Mm -hmm. like that i think that's good because we shouldn't be glorifying people like that but that's just that's one of to use the metaphor of um like hydraulics or things like that these mass shootings and rampant shootings are just like terms of suicide that's another thing that people reflect on is the the level of gun violence that we just accept or the same thing that lets the that leads to there being gun violence in black and brown neighborhoods across the community across the um america it's a lot of similar things that are lines for for mostly in this case white people to go and do these mass shootings but the gun but the fact that for a lot of young men using a gun is the thing that allows you to release all this pressure and stress placed upon you and that you're cultivated to kill other that you 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 actually you feel like you actualize yourself in being able to kill and dominate others that's just something that's structurally part of our system that we got to figure out like to invest in right are we actually are we actually valuable Right, because people, a lot of these people, and I'm talking because I'm talking about men because these are the main people that are doing these shootings, but they're getting a lot of messages that they aren't valuable, and that they don't matter, um, and but also simultaneously that they have a right or ability to use violence to feel that they do matter, and so, um, you know, there's a there's a question of you know, are we going to make our society into one in which people feel like they have value and they can actualize themselves or are we not? Um, and there are some things that we're getting because we're not doing that. Like a certain level of, of free flowing of commodities, a certain level of false leisure, but there's, there's a price that's being paid, right? And that these, that we're, we're regularly sacrificing all kinds of people all across our country for, to make this system work. I think um, Allen Ginsberg, when he talked about the god Moloch, he has a poem. Oh, Hal. Hal. Oh, I love Hal. His famous poem. He talks about Moloch, right? Moloch is a god that demands children as sacrifices. And he's using that as a representation of the United States system, right? In which there's a lot of young people who are dying, <laughs> right? Either killing themselves. Such a great giving poem. Giving up on their dreams. Um, killing other people. Um, being deeply violated sexually and mentally by other young people, right? And I mean young, I mean like my age and, and younger, you know? So are we going to continue allowing this sacrifice to happen? And for what, right? 
What are we making sacred by continually sacrificing ourselves and sacrificing our future? Which is what a lot of which a lot of millennials are feeling the pressure we're being asked to do. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamos and the machinery of night. I don't know the whole thing, but I remember yes. the first couple of lines. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And uh, Yearning for a connection, an ancient connection. Yeah. Anyways, man, I think that's probably a good place to end. I think it is. We've been going for quite a long time. Yeah, which we usually do. Yeah. It's no problem. Thanks for doing this, man. It was a good conversation. I think it was too.